You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 28. Making a study of it. Well, hello there. Welcome to Denver Orbit. This is an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community, and I am Josh Madison. And here we are at episode 28, the last episode before things get a little spooky around here. That's right, the air is getting cooler, the leaves are starting to fall from the trees, and this episode has absolutely nothing to do with that. Instead, we've got some more science from our favorite science guy, Graham Lau. We've also got a song from one of my favorite local acts, The Far Stairs, and we've got a lovely fiction piece from someone new to the show, Zoe Murak. So, should I give you the same spiel I give every time? The one where I ask you to tell your friends about the show and help the show grow, and to maybe even rate and review it on whatever podcast app you use, and tell people about it. You know what? Nah, I'll skip it this time. I'll let you off the hook. Instead, let's just get started with today's show. We last heard from Graham Lau in the spring this year, see episode 21, Science and Poetry, when he told a story about nearly dying in a glacier collapse. But Dr. Lau isn't just a guy who almost died doing science. When he was here telling that other story, we also talked about Graham's other area of expertise, astrobiology. He spends a lot of time thinking about some of the fantastic creatures on our planet, and many of which can help us come to a deeper understanding of the other planets in the solar system. So here's Graham. Ever since I was a kid, I always wondered, are we alone? Is there more to this life? Is there something else out there? Are we just on our little blue marble, our, our little third rock from our small star, just kind of all alone in the universe? Is the only life, or, or is life more common? Are there aliens out there? As of right now, we know about 4,000 worlds around other stars and that number just keeps growing all the time, chances are by the time I'm an old man, we'll know of hundreds of thousands of worlds around other stars. And so as an astrobiologist, it's feeling more likely right now all the time that if there is life out there, you know, other life, alien, extraterrestrial life out there, that life, you know, it, it's waiting for us to, to discover it and maybe even to communicate with it. But, you know, until we, until we find out if there's life out there and, and, you know, those of us who are astrobiologists, we're trying our hardest to figure out what to look for and what kinds of signs can we detect and, and make these determinations. But, you know, right now, the, the only place we know of that has life is Earth. And so of late, I've been really intrigued by the craziest creatures on Earth these really weird organisms and, and what they might actually have to tell us about possible life out there. And again, you know, we don't really know of any other worlds out there yet that have life, but we do know of, of some other alien environments already from just studying the other worlds in our solar system. So for instance, Earth's twin planet, Venus. 
that's just a little bit closer to the sun than we are. And if we look at it with our naked eye or with telescopes, what we see is a world enshrouded in clouds. Uh, Venus has a very thick atmosphere. But luckily, we can see down to the surface using various techniques, like using radar, to, to see the surface of Venus. And we've had a few uh, spacecraft go there and study that world. And one thing we know is that the surface of Venus is a, a hell of a place to be for human beings. It's about 92 times the pressure at the surface than we have here on Earth uh, at sea level. Uh, and the surface of Venus is around 850 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so Neil deGrasse Tyson once calculated you could cook a freezer pizza in about 8 seconds on the surface of Venus. Uh, however, you would definitely be dead before those 8 seconds were over, so you would never have a chance to eat it anyway, so that doesn't matter. Um, but life as we know it, life here on Earth, cannot survive 850 degrees Fahrenheit. That's, that's too high, but life can still be found in some hot environments. Uh, so for instance, here on Earth, we have Yellowstone National Park uh, up in Wyoming, and that's a place that's really well known for these beautiful hot springs and geysers. Uh, especially one of my favorite is Grand Prismatic Spring. Uh, it's the largest hot spring in the United States, and it has this beautiful coloration around the outside of the spring. So in the middle is this very deep blue color of this very hot fluid coming out of the earth. And, and as the fluid makes its way out to the edges of the lake, you start seeing greens and, and oranges and reds and yellows. And those colorations are all caused by microorganisms that are thriving in that high temperature environment. So from about 160 degrees Fahrenheit um, down to fairly cool, actually, at the outer edges, um, you know, um, where those things kind of then taper off into the, the environment out around them. And, you know, those kinds of organisms we've now been studying for a long time, we call them extremophiles because they can survive in extreme environments or at least extreme relative to us. And, you know, these organisms, they're, they're thriving in, in temperatures of fluid that would kill a human being, uh, and yet they're, they're doing quite well. Uh, and all those colorations in, in the spring are actually caused by pigments uh, inside of these microorganisms that are thriving there. So they have, you know, greens from chlorophyll, and then there are these things called carotenoids that are giving them the oranges and, and, and reddish kind of colors and stuff. Uh, and so that's pretty high temperature for, for uh, organisms to live. Uh, and a lot of us scientists know that our autoclaves, for instance, uh, we try to kill off all the organisms sometimes inside of our samples so we can sterilize things to, to study biology in the lab. Uh, our autoclaves often take things up to high pressure and around 121 degrees Celsius. Um, and actually, it turns out there are a couple of organisms that can survive above 121 degrees Celsius. Um, one of those is called strain 121 and was found because it could survive an autoclave. Um, and the other one, uh, M. candelari, uh, has been seen to survive around 122 degrees Celsius, uh, which is just over 250 degrees Fahrenheit. That's very hot. Uh, and that's currently somewhere we think is right around where the limit for life as we know it. And then when it comes to the other side of the spectrum in temperature, we've seen organisms surviving down to negative 5, negative 10 Celsius, you know, low temperatures. And we don't actually know how low, you know, the temperature can go for life to exist. We think that maybe negative 20 degrees Celsius is kind of like a lower, a lower limit for metabolism, for, you know, biology as we know it. But one really cool thing that a lot of life on Earth has figured out how to do is to survive the process of freezing for some period of time to then come back and thrive when temperatures are more clement. 
And so, for instance, one really cool organism that you should definitely look up uh, is the wood frog. Uh, so wood frogs are really cool because they can they survive in these Arctic environments where they have to survive a lot of freeze-thaw cycles in the soil during the wintertime. And so wood frogs sometimes we found in the soil when they're frozen, and there's basically this hard ice cube of frog flesh. Uh, but it turns out a very large portion of their bodies can be entirely frozen, and they can still survive. Uh, because they excrete these antifreeze materials inside of their cells to keep the important cellular material from freezing while the rest of the fluid around the cell and inside of their bodies can freeze freely. Uh, and this then gives them the ability to, to basically survive freezing and thawing over and over again and to continue their life cycles. Uh, there are also lots of fish, for instance, that can survive you know, in these, these very cold environments during freezing periods and then come back as soon as you know, the temperatures are more, are more clement. So when it comes to understanding other environments here in our solar system, one of, you know, the favorite of a lot of people right now is Mars. You know, when we look at Mars at night, you know, with your, your naked eye in the sky, it, it has a very red color to it. And so it's, it's understandable why, why ancient people associated that world with, with the gods of war and fire. And the surface of Mars is one that, you know, a lot of times we think about humans going to and colonizing, but it's still not super friendly. Uh, it averages negative 90 degrees Fahrenheit. It's also the only place we know of in the entire universe that is solely inhabited by robots. We know that because we keep sending robots there, but still, it's, it's a pretty cool fact to know. Uh, and right now, we, we actually have two robots functioning on the surface of Mars right now, uh, the rovers Opportunity and Curiosity. The rover Curiosity, when it first launched to Mars, had an instrument on board called RAD or the Radiation Assessment Detector. Uh, this is the only instrument that was turned on during the entire transit to Mars and since landing on Mars with Curiosity. And what RAD started doing as soon as the, the spacecraft had launched was recording the radiation environment on the trip to Mars and on the surface of Mars. And one thing we, we've discovered from, from Curiosity is that the radiation environment on Mars is even worse than we even thought before. So there's more radiation hitting the surface of Mars uh, and more radiation that will affect our astronauts on the way to Mars. Uh, and so we, we know that if we do send humans there, we have to mitigate that high radiation environment. However, there are some crazy creatures on Earth that can deal with high radiation environments and they can thrive. So for instance, one of my favorite uh, is Dinococcus radiodurans. Its name literally means terrible berry that can withstand radiation. This organism was first discovered when we were irradiating tins of meat uh, for, for, for food packaging. And so basically, you know, we, we use gamma radiation to sterilize these tins of meat so that they could be stored in the shelves for long periods of time for later consumption. And one thing they found is that some of these tins of meat were still having spoilage inside of them even after irradiation. And it's because Dinococcus radiodurans could thrive just fine in that high radiation environment. Um, they can take something like 5,000 times more of the radiation dose than, than we can. Um, however, uh, Dinococcus radiodurans, even though it is considered by, by Guinness World Records to, to be the toughest microbe on the planet, um, it's kind of now been upset by, by the new favorite in the world of extremophile organisms by something known as the tardigrade. 
Tardigrades are also known as water bears, and they've kind of become the cult favorite of everybody. Um, they're so popular right now, uh, and for good reason. Uh, they're very cute, uh, beautiful little organisms. They exist all over our planet. Uh, you can walk out in your backyard uh, in many places here in the U.S., and if you find some dry lichen or some moss, uh, you can actually potentially knock some some water bears out of it and actually observe them in your own home. There's there's you know ways you can go online and look this up and. You can do it in your own home as a little science experiment with your children to try to see some water bears. And these, these organisms uh, look very cool under the microscope with their little legs kind of moving around. Um, they're also polyextremophiles. So water bears can survive many extremes, in, including a high radiation dose, almost as high as Dinococcus radiodurans. Water bears can survive very cold environments and they can survive desiccation. Uh, so that's that's drying out. So what water bears do when they're in a nice moist environment They're happy and they're the way we see them on television with their little legs palpitating and kind of grooving around in the wet environment around them But when things get dry the water bears will push all of the fluid out of their bodies and basically make themselves this little shriveled up ball of flesh uh, that can then come back once there's more water around they can then rehydrate themselves and kind of come back and, and survive and so water bears are one of our favorite organisms right now for astrobiology because they can survive in the vacuum of space. We've been doing these exposure experiments uh, on the space shuttle, on satellites, and on the International Space Station where we put various organisms into the space environment and see what happens to their cells, uh, how their genes change, things like that. Uh, and one thing we've seen is that water bears can actually survive the exposure to the space environment for quite a long time, many days. This is intriguing for those of us who have considered whether or not panspermia uh, could ever happen, where life could be seeded from one world to another. Uh, so maybe sometime in the distant past, there was life on Venus that got shot over to the Earth, or maybe life on Earth that, you know, through an, uh, an impact event was sent over to Mars or something like that. And even though we don't currently have any evidence that any panspermia event has ever occurred, uh, it's still a really intriguing idea. And so when it comes to finding some of these weird environments in our solar system, we don't just have, you know, Venus and Mars and these things close to us on, on these terrestrial worlds. We also have the many icy worlds of the outer solar system. So for instance, one of the favorites right now of astrobiology is the moon Europa. It's one of the Galilean moons. Uh, so it was one of the first four moons that Galileo Galilei discovered in 1609. So there, there's little Eo. Uh, or Io, as some people say, uh, the most volcanically active world in our solar system. Uh, there are Ganymede and Callisto, Ganymede being the largest moon in our solar system. But then there's Europa. Europa is a fairly large moon. It has this icy crust on the surface that we see. You know, when we look at it in pictures, we see that, that icy surface with all these lines kind of broken around it. Uh, and then down below that ice, that ice is maybe somewhere in the range of about six miles or so thick. And then down below that is this really deep voluminous ocean. Maybe something in the range of 60 to 75 miles in depth. And so that's a lot of water, a lot of ocean. And one reason a lot of us are really intrigued now, not just because there's, there's water there, but because we think that there's a chance that at the very bottom of that ocean there could be hydrothermal vents. So just like we have here on Earth, Sometimes ocean water is drawn into the oceanic crust down below, 
and is warmed up by the mantle of our planet and heated up to high temperature and then forced to come back out of the ground or of the oceanic crust. And, and when it does, it makes these large black smokers, as we call them, uh, these, these very high temperature, metal rich, acidic fluids pumping out of, out of the, the bottom of the ocean floor. And where they come out, they, they form these chimneys uh, made of, of lots of metal sulfides and, and other minerals. And they also provide very unique ecosystems for life including things like those giant tube worms, like Riftia pachya, um, for albino crabs, and a lot of microorganisms that thrive. And so if Europa has hydrothermal vents, maybe it has these little ecosystems that have evolved in its ocean floor and throughout the rest of its ocean as well. And so that's, that's really intriguing. Uh, and here on Earth, we know of so many awesome creatures on the seafloor. Uh, it's where some of the most alien creatures, as we know them, you know, relevant to us, exist on our planet. Uh, for instance, one of them, the blobfish, is, is really cool. Uh, the blobfish lives off the coast of Tasmania, New Zealand, Australia, uh, spends most of its time on the, on the bottom of the ocean, thousands of feet down. And the blobfish, unlike a lot of other fish that have air sacs to kind of maintain its, its buoyancy, its position in, in the water, uh, they're so deep that those air sacs really wouldn't work, and so blobfish instead have this gelatinous flesh that kind of allows them to better control their buoyancy to allow them to just kind of float just above the ocean floor. And in their natural environment, they, they look fine, like just beautiful fish. But the reason that they get their name is because of how we found them. So we started trawling in these areas, and some fishermen started noticing these these nasty blobs of fish that were coming up in their nets. Uh, and, and so what happens when you bring this blobfish, this gelatinous flesh of fish, up from its natural environment and take it to the surface at much lower pressure, uh, its flesh basically just, 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 just slumps. And it makes this blob-looking feature. That's how adaptation works, though. Some organisms are so adapted to their environments that not only can they not survive in other environments, but they don't even look like they're in the right place in, in other environments. And so when it comes to trying to understand whether or not alien life can exist out there, one thing we consider is, is what alien environments might be like. You know, what, what kinds of adaptations might be necessary for alien life to, to eat, to move, to get around in its environment, um, based primarily on you know, the, the geochemistry, the geophysics um, of what alien worlds could be like, um, let alone the biology. And so a lot of us astrobiologists, you know, we, we look at places like Venus, you know, that, that hot world uh, very close to the sun compared to us, and we look at Mars, you know, the next planet out, and places like Europa, and even other worlds in our solar system like Enceladus and Titan, and we try to imagine what other worlds might be like then, and as we keep discovering more and more and thousands and thousands more of these exoplanets, these worlds around other stars, and as the chances keep getting better that we're going to find alien life, if it is out there, uh, then I think we're, we're really setting ourselves up to have a better understanding by taking a step back here right now on Earth and realizing that there's alien stuff going on right in our own backyard.
Dr. Graham Lau is an astrobiologist and a communicator of science. He's pursued an education in biology, chemistry, astrophysics, and geology, and has been lucky enough to travel to some awesome places in the name of science. Dr. Lau currently serves as the Director of Communications and Marketing for Blue Marble Space, a nonprofit focused on developing international collaboration in sustainable living, earth system science, and space exploration. You can find Dr. Lau on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Cosmobiologist and at his website, Cosmobiata.com. And of course, I'll have links to all of this in the show notes. Coming up next is a song from a band we've heard before, The Far Stairs. We're going to hear another uh, track from that album, Figure One. This track is called Everyone I'll Never See Again. talk between them a sentence on the phone takes a hundred years a letter in the mail takes a thousand lifetimes i'll never love another who doesn't look like you in some way i'll say the same thing to everyone i see if i repeat it to enough of them you'll hear it someday so
The Far Stairs album Figure One is available now. You can check out their Bandcamp page for that and much, much more. Also, Jesse and Andrew have made a short film. It's called The Blue Room, and you can check that out on YouTube and find out more about that at blueroomhorrorfilm.com. And I'll have links for all of that in the show description. Hey, do you like the internet? Who doesn't? It's the greatest place on Earth. And... There's a little corner of it set aside for Denver Orbit. Over there on Instagram, you can see some interesting nonsense that has nothing to do with the show, but you may just be delighted all the same. That's Denver Orbit on Instagram. And of course, we've got a Facebook page because you have to. It's the law now. Facebook.com slash Denver Orbit. Now, last up is a story from Zomarok called Photographic Memory. Hold still, Chloe. Mom's still taking the picture. Charlotte and I, ages 6 and 11, stood in our Easter dresses on the front steps. Mine, which I would never have picked for myself, looked like something from a ballet recital with ruffles and sequins. I was not a very feminine child. Charlotte looked nice. She'd picked her own outfit, a cute blue dress with a white sash that tied in a big bow on the back, with these obnoxious striped tights that Maybe we're in style at that moment. It was the 90s. Maybe more than I hated wearing dresses, I hated having my picture taken. I was a kid. I hated holding still. I was doing everything I could in trying. Holding my Easter basket with my arms out in obviously feigned excitement, fidgeting with it. I was getting close to my breaking point, and then I reached it. So I took off across the yard, tromping through mud puddles. I picked up some speed and managed to scare up a leopard frog from its hibernation, which I dove to catch, splashing mud all over my dress. But I sort of forgot about the dress. I was in my element as I wove between the trees, feeling more and more myself as I found myself deeper in the forest. After a while of splashing and running and playfully chasing animals, I got a good look at my reflection in a perfectly still puddle. The first thing I noticed was my smile, with a few missing teeth, My hair was short, wispy, and frazzled. My dress was ripped and absolutely filthy. I decided it was kind of a good look for me, taking off my shoes and letting my toes wriggle free. I broke off a green stick and wove it into a pathetic little wreath about the size of my head to wear as a crown. I glanced at my reflection when the puddle calmed down, and then I spoke out loud. Not exactly to myself, but to the bustling audience of the entire woods. Does this forest have a queen yet? I waited for an answer, over the chattering of squirrels and birds, the living quiet. Speak now if you wish to contest my reign. I waited again before placing the makeshift crown on my head. Then I shall be the queen, I suppose, if no one has a problem with it. The living silence went on, unchanged. It was a cold spring morning in the bright sun. I was early in learning to repress my shivering, but it still seemed like a better place than home and having my picture taken. I addressed the whole forest again, already starting to feel lonely. Should I stay here? As long as I'm the queen after all, I don't see any sense in ever going home again. Every time I talked to the heaving body of earth, 
It was almost as though I expected an answer. More like talking to a dog, I guess, than talking to nothing. The forest was listening. It just didn't have answers for my particular questions. It didn't need a queen. It didn't quite exactly oppose my reign, either. The woods was my first friend outside of Charlotte. I started to gather a pile of sticks for a house and a fire. If my family actually would have left me out there, I'd have died for sure. But there is so much value in the childish belief that I would have survived, that I would have been fine without them. I heard a rustling in the leaves, so I puffed my chest out, holding my head high, ready to defend my kingdom. I was relieved to see it was only Charlotte looking for me. It must have been a lot longer in my imagination than the time that had actually passed. You better hightail it back, Twerp. If Mom has to come back here, you'll be grounded for a year. I'm sorry, but no. I've already decided to stay in the forest forever. Chloe, this isn't a game. You're already in a lot of trouble. I started crying, the way you only can when you're little, before all your feelings get muddled with expectations of you. But the forest has made me its queen. The forest needs me. And you and Mom don't. You and Mom just want to be mean to me. Charlotte rolled her eyes. Come on, Chloe, you know that isn't true. Mom and I love you. If sometimes we're a little rough, I'm sorry. We just want what's best for you. You can't make me, I said with my arms crossed over my chest. I'm too big now. You can't pick me up and carry me. Knowing this was true, Charlotte changed strategies. She reached into the pocket of her dress, revealing the chocolate bunny from her own Easter basket. I'll let you have mine if you come back with me. It was too good an offer to resist. The forest could govern itself. Okay, I said, jumping for the prize, which she held up high above my head. You can have it when we get back. We started down the path towards our house. I hadn't gone very far. I was technically on the next door neighbor's property, but they had a whole huge woods compared to our paltry patch of trees which led into it. They were older and we never saw them out there anyway. But it was too late. Mom's shadow loomed over us. Our mom was a tall, serious, Irish Midwestern woman with cottony blonde hair neither of us inherited. She always kept it short and permed. She was hefty and had a look about her that was always sullen and tired. She was overworked in the typical manner of single mothers. She never took much shit from either of us. On Easter, she wore a cheap sweatshirt with a picture of a bunny on it. Its cheeriness was a sharp contrast with her demeanor. She was a strict parent, and her punishments were severe. We were both in huge trouble. Charlotte got in trouble when I did. There's no two ways about it. Sometimes she got punished and I didn't, for something only I did. She was always supposed to be watching me. When we got back to the house, my mom wrestled me into the bathroom. She pulled the dress off over my head. I paid money for this, she said, shoving it in my face. And look what you did, you ruined it. I didn't ruin it, I protested. It's just dirty, we could just put it in the washer. It is absolutely filthy and it's ripped. She tossed it in the tiny bathroom garbage. Now take a bath, she demanded. I sank into the bathtub, peering over its rim. My mom's still standing in the bathroom. I stared at the dress. I felt guilty for ruining something my mom had bought me, even if it wasn't to my liking. 
I hadn't thought about ruining the dress when I ran off into the woods. I'd hardly thought about anything until the mud puddles and the leopard frogs got my attention. I'm sorry I ruined the dress, I said tearfully. My mom was also crying, but in the silent way that grown-ups cry. Chloe, someday you'll understand how much you mean to me. How I do everything for you. Everything I do. Photographic memory is part of a novel so I was working on. She's a writer based here in Denver. Hey, do you want to submit something to the show? Music, memoir, poetry, avant-garde weirdness, hey, a grocery list if it's good enough, just about anything. Let me know at denverorbit at gmail.com. And that'll do it for today. Denver Orbit is produced and edited by me, Josh Madison, and I'll see you again actually very shortly. Okay, goodbye. Kentucky Derby days I'll be in my basement That sounded almost like Casey Kasem. Never win with a bullet, everyone I'll never see again. And another girl to take my pain away Take me down Little Susie, take me down I know you think you're the queen of the underground.